Yeah, my wife's had words to me because, you know, when I, when I left politics, she said, okay, well, you've done that. Can we have a bit mm. of an easier life? And, and I went back into banking where I'd spent a lot of my career. And coming back into banking, there was a Royal Commission, you know, so that was a pretty gruelling time in the banking world. And then I came into aged care as, as we discussed the reasons and motivation, but there was a Royal Commission there as well. Um, the Royal Commissions are tracking you down, Mike. <laughs> Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hey there, what's up everybody? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Ashton Eve. We're back and underway for our third season and we've got a great guest today, one that I was really excited to chat to. Former Premier of New South Wales and CEO of Hammond Care, Mike Baird, has joined us in this interview to talk about his arrival into the industry, how greater transparency could improve the quality of care, and of course that tricky relationship between government and aged care. Now, we recorded this interview just as things were looking really exciting with COVID. At the end of 2021, I don't know if you remember, but there was a little bubble of hope. It lasted about a week or two before things went down again. So as we're recording this, things aren't going so great in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Hopefully, when you're listening to it, we're past that. Everything is great again. So just take any comments about COVID with a grain of salt and a fond memory for the things that we used to feel at the end of last year. Now, if you didn't already know, we're launching a brand new show this Friday with our good friends Daniela Greenwood and Murray Voicey-Barlin called Who Cares? And each week, they'll be digging a little bit deeper to some of the ideas we talked about in our Tuesday episode, including today's episode with Mike Baird. So don't miss the first episode of the new show, Who Cares?, which will be in the same podcast feed this Friday. Anyway, that's all from me for now. We hope you enjoy this chat with Mike Baird. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, the pleasure's all ours. And uh, normally we start by asking about our guest's career and background. I feel like our listeners might have an idea of who you are and the work you've been doing. So maybe we could take it back and ask about your family. I understand that both your parents spent some significant time overseas when you were were a kid. What were those early days like? Were you hopping between countries? It was, um, my father was in foreign affairs. It was a privilege to, to travel around the world. So we spent uh, four years in, in America, in New York, which I absolutely loved. And I think that foreign affairs kids, uh, they go one or two ways. They either sort of thrive and enjoy and love meeting people and engaging, or they become a little bit introverted because of the change can be confronting. Mm. No, I loved it. And I certainly didn't want to leave New York. I, I was uh, in love with New York. I was on the, the baseball team, the uh, football team had a girlfriend who was the lead in the the plays and uh, everything was looking rosy until my parents said, it's time to come back. Uh, we're going to Australia and you're going to an all-boys all military school. And yeah, that's when things took a, a bit of a turn down for a while. <laughs> yeah, so, so what age were you at when you had to leave? Uh, would have been about 13, 13 or 14, yeah. I guess that's what parents do sometimes. You got to disappoint your kids to do what's right. <laughs> I read that your mum did some some work in Egypt as well, right? Yeah, no, she was an amazing woman. My mum and had a big heart for uh, other people, 
and uh, she was particularly taken, having connected him with this uh, a woman called Mother Maggie, and she started a charity on the tips of Cairo where there was um, young orphans that had obviously nowhere to live and no one to care for, and they huddled together in the tips and made shelter. And Yeah, my mum was captivated by that and went over there and spent time and certainly helped to, to raise funds here in Australia. So, um, you know, she taught me that, you know, where there's need, you can contribute. And uh, she certainly um, lived that every day. Yeah, well, I know that, that you and your dad and your brother are, are quite uh, heavily involved in, in asylum seekers and, and refugees and, and supporting their rights, aren't you? Does that some of that come from your mum? Oh, you yeah, know, definitely. And, yeah, my, my, my father was strong in that. When he was in federal government, he uh, actually visited um, some of the detention centres. He was on a committee and uh, decided to go and visit each and every one. And I remember him coming back and he was saying, well, he had never seen such human desperation as he'd seen on our lands with these refugees and, you know, some of their backgrounds are so distressing. So he, he took a stand in government, but, you know, look, a small part, our sort of day in, day out, our refugee support groups, they're the ones that should be acknowledged because they, they do an amazing job. Speaking of your mum's legacy, I, I know that towards the end of her life, she was receiving care for a debilitating illness and was her journey through aged care was that a factor that led to you moving into aged care with Hammond Care? Uh, definitely, definitely. When I was thinking about what next to do, you know, I was approached by Hammond Care as an opportunity. I never would have thought of it, I don't think, in, in any way. But having had my mum uh, in the aged care system for a number of years, I began to realise that there is this incredible work that's profound, life-changing, and I think community and nation-shaping that's not recognised, not valued, and it really should be. You know, the moment that anyone hands across someone they loved with their hands to others' hands in uh, the aged care system, it's traumatic. And you're, you just hope that those hands care for your mum or whoever it is you hand across that you love so dearly in a way you can, obviously, with different expertise and skills. And, I mean, I, I certainly wanted to do work that was impactful and help people and improve people's lives. And that all came together in Hammond Care, in the aged care sector. But it was the personal story mm. that probably dragged me across. And for me, everyone we care for, whether it be at home or in our hospitals or uh, in our aged care facilities, you know, my sense is my team, and I speak about that moment, that our hands take it from the hands of those that love this person and we have to do everything we can to improve their quality of life. So certainly the personal story, you know, of my mum has, has shaped me. And did you feel like when your mum went into care that do you feel like they supported her? Yes, I mean, I really do. I mean, obviously it wasn't perfect mm. in, in terms of the um, day in, day out. I mean, there's all types of things that you'd like to see that potentially you're not seeing, but as a collective and as a core, very much so. You know, when I got to mum's funeral, there were two carers in particular that I wanted to thank. And I was overcome with emotion trying to talk about how profound they were. They weren't just carers, they were, they were part of the family. But even more than that, they cared and loved mum in a way that was profound and so impactful and so wonderful. And there's many things that come back to a care in terms of insight and love and appreciation. But uh, as a family, and this is the thing, you know, a single carer that is caring for someone that's loved so deeply 
you're impacting the family, you're impacting their friends and, and friends of friends. There's this broad community around a single person. So I uh, was uh, very happy with the way mum was treated and I, and I, you know, the challenges in the sector are real. No provider is going to be perfect, but at the core, that DNA, they're really trying to care and give dignity and respect to those that you know, in our facilities or at home. You know, I saw that. Well, that's great. And you joined Hammercare at, at somewhat of an awkward time, right, in the, the beginning of 2020. How were the first 18 months? How have they been adjusting to this pandemic and coming into a new position? Yeah, my wife said words to me because, you know, when I, when I left politics, she said, okay, well, you've done that. Can we have a bit mm. of an easier life? And, and I went back into banking where I'd spent a lot of my career and coming back into banking, there was a Royal Commission, you know, so that was a pretty gruelling time in the banking world. And then I came into aged care as, as we discussed the reasons and motivation, but there was a Royal Commission there as well. Um, the Royal Commissions are tracking you down, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, so the Royal Commissions bring the right challenge, but I also think for the sector, amazing opportunities. So I know we'll, we'll get to that. But COVID on top, together with those challenges, has made it a, an incredibly difficult time. But what a rewarding time. I found it engaging, inspiring, and also really starting to get clear in my mind on what we need to do, both individually in terms of family care, but also across the sector. So the challenges of, of COVID were intense, the impact on our workforce significant, but there was this deep desperation to try and protect and care for those um, in our facilities in particular, but obviously at home as well. And the team's done an amazing job notwithstanding. So challenging time. But um, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. And in amongst those challenges, did you have any sorts of changes or ideas that you wanted to bring to Hammond Care or bring to the sector as a whole? For me, I think that we need to you know, have a broad debate across the country. And I think the Royal Commission did that, that actually our elderly are valuable. They're significant and they deserve the best possible care they can, not just what's sort of flipped off the back of a budget table in terms of what we can give, you know, at the core what is the best quality care that we can provide to our elderly. And they deserve it and they matter. And I think as a country, we weren't at that position. You know, I think it's, you know, you get old and you, you kind of disappear off the economic spectrum and good luck, mm. you know, whereas opposed to remaining engaged with their story, their contribution, and on back of that, you know, through family and friends, but more broadly as a country, well, how do we provide the care they need in their final years? And I think the value of our elderly is a broad debate that we need to have. The value of those that provide that care. I mean, our care workers look at what they're paid versus other sectors. They're there for their heart. They're there for the contribution and difference they can make to people's lives. But we also need to attract talent and the workforce challenges are huge. So they deserve to be valued for the work they're doing and that needs to be redone. And obviously there's a Fair Work Commission underway in relation to that. But we also need to give the appropriate training. So better wages, better training is going to give more capacity to provide the care we need. So that, yeah, that's the, the two broader things. Specifically for us, it's, you know, we, we've got a strong kind of leadership position in complex dementia in particular and also palliative care. And, you know, I think in the sector, it's trying to work out, well, where have you got the leadership positions how can you not only maintain those, enhance those, and how can that sort of help to shape the sector? So from my point of view, I don't think we should just be doing everything we can for those we care for. We should be 
But if we are doing things that are making a difference, you need to share them and help it, you know, and impact as many people as possible. And, you know, that's sort of our drive. You know, how can we become the best in the areas that we're caring and what we're learning, how we can share that uh, with everyone? I think that's, if, if each provider did that, I, th- I think we'd be in a stronger position. Just doubling down there, as you said, you've had a background in finance and, and politics. Were there any things in particular from those two fields that you thought you could bring to Hammond Care or you could bring to this industry that might shift it in a way that hadn't been shifted before? I mean, I think one thing that I can help with and have started to engage with is, is, is the engagement with government. They're obviously a critical stakeholder. The key decision makers, the senior ministers, you know, through to the treasurer and prime minister, all of them want to make good public policy. It doesn't matter what government is in. I generally believe that. And the context that we have to do is to inform that. There could be challenges in aged care. Well, can you give us clear priorities? And the Royal Commission has obviously mapped it out. But we have to be much sharper in what the, the challenges are and then what the solutions. And, for, you know, from a government point of view, every day there's groups unhappy or sort of problems that need to be fixed. It becomes much easier if you sort of speak as one you're synthesised and it's not just the problem, but here are some of the solutions. I mean, that's that's what government needs. And with all the decisions that those senior ministers have to make, the clearer it is, the easier it, it makes it. And I think that's important in the lead up to the, the Royal Commission decision. I, you know, I had a chance to engage with all of those decision makers and give reflections. You know, so when, when we're talking about is money required on the front line, well, I could reflect on my time on shift and seeing what is available and what is needed to provide the care we have with personal stories and personal experience. And that's what we have to do more. It's very easy to say we need more money, but let's be very specific on how that could be spent and what it could deliver in terms of outcomes. And, and I think that could be a real benefit to the sector. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like the, the direction that the federal government is heading in with the age cap policy is going to be helpful, is going to make a difference? Yeah, I do. I, I, I think it is certainly a good start. At the moment, the, the number one challenge across the sector is attracting the workforce we need with the demands currently, let alone the demands that are coming. So we, we really need that. And, you know, wages is part of it. We have, there's money that's gone towards some of the training that we need. There is money that's um, been put aside to help with sustainability, which has enabled us to put additional sort of care staff or nurses on where we where we need to. The wages is being kicked out of the Fair Work Commission. So that is an important decision next year, that if that is a positive decision, that's going to give us a chance to be competitive with comparable industries, attract more staff and retain more staff. And that really is a, is a key issue. Two things that I think are critical in terms of long-term reform. One is the context of the independent pricing. That to me is the most significant reform because when you get to a cabinet decision on aged care funding, they're now going to have to reflect on the independent uh, pricing that will say, well, this is the cost of providing the care that we need. They might not decide to give the funding, but they're going to have to argue why they've given less than it's needed to provide the quality care. So I think the the independent pricing is a very significant reform. And then the second is the the star system. You know, because I think from a, a consumer point of view, 
very complicated the system you know having gone through it like mm. who, w what provider do you go to what are they like in simple terms the star system puts the onus on providers it'll put an onus on us we were talking about this at our leadership team yesterday in in preparation we have to understand how it works and the government seems like it wants to have it implemented by next year which feels at pace but i think from a consumer point of view it'll be important and we'll have the position where any consumer in a very quick way, they'll be able to determine XYZ provider, this is their overall star system, this is the summary, this is where they go well versus their competitors or they're not as good as their competitors. So I think that onus on the providers that continually to be better and, you know, if you've got a lower star system and you want to get up, you need to understand why they are up there and what are the things you need to focus on. The example in the US showed that the, the higher rated, they've got a similar sort of star system, the higher rated providers, they significantly outperformed in terms of uh, COVID and uh, the impacts that it had. So, right. you know, just an example of, you know, why it could be really important for us that best possible practice, whether it be infection control, whether it be quality of care, quality of life. And I think that is going to be a significant reform for the sector long term. Yeah. And to take the other side of that, it could be a piece of transparency or accountability for providers that, that maybe aren't providing the best possible care that consumers will be able to see these areas are slipping and they need to be addressed. Very much so. And because, you, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, even if you just go to your local aged care provider, you think, well, that's where mum or dad or, you know, aunt or uncle will go. And actually, you know, they're two out of five stars and it would be very much worth if you want the best bodily queer to, to travel an extra half an hour. And, you know, so that's both ways. You've, you've got the consumer choice, but then, you know, that local provider, well, they've got a chance to move from two stars up, whereas at the moment the obligation on them is, you know, isn't as public, I think would be mm. the way I'd, I'd talk about it. Yeah. Well, there was a back and forth between you and Professor Joseph Ibrahim on Q&A a few months back about oh, yes. the problems <laughs> in aged care and where the responsibility lies. Do you feel that the, the government has wrapped a supportive ecosystem around providers to the point that it, it is the provider's responsibility to deliver appropriate care, or are there systemic issues that are beyond the scope of individual providers? Look, I think, I, I mean, ultimately, you know, Joseph, he's one of those people that's put his career into the sector and has done an incredible job and been very influential and had a big impact. I, I understand the challenge of the systemic, but I also think that ultimately, you know, individual providers, you know, have to take the actions that they need themselves. And I think that's where the, the star system will come. You know, the star system should, if there are systemic issues, you'll be marked up or down relative to that. Something like care minutes, well, there's actually, everyone will now know, you know, how many care minutes a day you, you are providing versus the minimum requirement versus peers. Mm -hmm. So the more transparent uh, your position, you know, versus to others, versus potential systemic issues, it's your individual response. Uh, now, from a government point of view, there could be reasons that they need to elevate their concern and support around that and direction and policy. But I come back to there's a pool of funds available. You know, yes, you can influence to get more funds. Yes, you can influence on particular issues. But day to day, week to week, month to month, you know, there's an opportunity as a provider to provide the best possible care. And, you know, when it's not being provided or there's issues of distress, well, you have to respond. Yeah, well, that, that is a, that's a nice way of explaining it. I think you might be an outlier in terms of other CEOs we've spoken to from aged care providers. Uh, for example, Sandra Hills from Benitas was very explicit in that the fish rots from the head and the government is the head in this instance. 
Do you feel like it, this puts you at odds with other providers? No, and I'm not. I'm not disputing that government has to step up and dress across a range of issues. No, I'm, I'm not disputing that. What, you know, what I'm saying, yeah, you know, there's an opportunity each day as a provider to make a difference. And if there is any way that you can provide better care or stop distress, stop neglect, that onus is on you. Now, yes, we might need more funding. Yes, we might need more government support. But I think we've probably been more point to the government rather than point to ourselves. And I guess there's, there's just a balance in that. Hey, did you know we launched a new show this season? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Maury Voicey-Barlin. That's right, Daniela and Maury are back and they're joining us every Friday for their new show, Who Cares? Where they'll be taking a quizzical look at some of aged care's challenges and exploring what they mean for all of us working in the industry. I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Mari, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, <laughs> Daniela. I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Mari. You, and the more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh, thank you. I think the same. It's a double dose of podcast fun each week and you can find it right here in the Ace Feed every Friday. You're going to be the new Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. How do you imagine you can increase cooperation amongst competing or supposedly competing providers? I think the um, sector representation, uh, and I'm involved in a process at the moment where we're looking at what is the best sector representation. I certainly start with the position, I think, a single peak industry group would make sense and would mm. if you think about the synergies and the way to present a comprehensive single voice in the government and the collective views of what the solutions are much easier doing that with a single voice now i'm also aware that others think that existing could could work and there's sort of challenges on how do you continue to provide really small providers as part of that you know a larger group and yeah so that needs to be worked through and understood but if you look across Australia, there's many industry groups that are very influential and powerful and government won't sort of enact in the policy until they've engaged and understood. Something mm. like the, the Property Council of Australia is a good uh, example. The Pharmacy Guild is another one. There's examples around the world. W we need a group like that, however it's constructed. Not only is, is about advocating providers and trying to streamline and develop good policy, but I also think it's holding ourselves to account. You know, what is the best standard of care? What sort of education do we want to provide? How do we win and engage local communities, both in terms of our social licence, but also participation, helping us care for our elderly? And I think there's a big role for a kind of group like that. So to me, the best form of advocacy, industry regulation and support and promotion we need that more. There's, there, there's no doubt there are too many voices and too much fracture across the sector in the representation now. The more streamlined it can be, the more powerful it will be. And it doesn't matter what level of government, if there's a powerful association or industry group that represents all the needs and interests of, of, of a particular sector, they will have the ear of government. And, and I think that's what we need. This is something we've heard before on the show, that there are too many voices in the space. How do you bring everyone together? We're doing that right now. So there's a, a process underway, which is sort of AXA and LASER, all the faith peaks, the, the aged care collaboration is brought together and the reform network, which is the old sort of guild providers, so some of the larger guys, all of that has come together 
to run a process, appointed an external consultant. So KPMG, so they're benchmarking all the best sort of industry groups, associations across Australia and looking at global examples as well. I, I think this is the first time the whole sector has looked at that some of the consumer groups will obviously be engaged as part of this. So I, I think it's comprehensive, just about as many as possible are being represented. So I think it's a real chance to actually uh, deliver something that could make a, a difference to the sector going forward. Great. Well, it sounds like a step in the right direction at the very least. Well, we'll call it a step. Yeah, Ash, that's, that, that's fair. and we'll, we'll see. Before the end of the year, the idea is to have a plan that we take across the sector and try and get as much support as we can. Great. Now, shifting gear to COVID, and how do you feel that aged care will, will be adapting to the coming months and the coming years? Well, it's, it's, it's a challenging period to start because the cases are obviously going to continue. And whilst the vaccinations are significantly reducing hospitals, hospitalizations, you know, clearly our clients and residents and patients are all, you know, still in the vulnerable sort of areas. So we're living with COVID doesn't mean that we're relaxing infection control. We mm. still need to be diligent and disciplined. And how that plays out, I think, is going to be significant. And we're still going to need government support as we do that. But I think for the first time, there is significant hope. I mean, that the last two years, you know, for this sector has been really tough, you know, brutal in many ways on leaders. And that's one thing that I've seen. There is really significant stress and pressures on the leadership group that I haven't really seen before. And you can imagine trying to protect the, those we are privileged to care for with this virus and the impact it could have should it get into facilities, as we saw in tragic circumstances. That's taken its toll. And, you know, we've had stories from many institutions where not just residents and families, but staff members have been significantly traumatised by what they've seen and what they've been through. We have to recognise that. Not only are we trying to attract staff, but we're trying to regenerate and re-energise existing leaders that have, have been through significant trauma. And I think that really is the, the best way to describe it. So whilst from a government point of view, you know, it's exciting to be mapping a way out of it. There are long-term impacts that we're going to have to deal with. Mm. And I think as a sector, we, we, we have to acknowledge that and we have to put our attention to that. So you're highlighting specifically the leaders in aged care that are carrying more of a burden or more weight than they had previously because of this extra risk? Yeah, and I'm saying across many sectors, I haven't seen the stresses on leaders. I mean, I, you know, you talk about a Royal Commission going into banking. Yes, there's stresses and pressures on it, but there's nothing like this. This is where, you know, our leaders are spent round the clock trying to protect those that we've got, we're privileged to care and the, the stress that's put on them and our, our care workers. I mean, they've often avoided going to meet friends, to go to parties, even when they could, or go to supermarkets because they were in fear that they would get COVID and then bring it into facilities, you know, deep fear. That has an impact. So it's it's not just the physical tightness of a relentless two years. There's an emotional and a physical and a well-being element that has taken a huge amount out of them. You know, so whether it be burnout or the you know psychological stress and emotional stress of what they've been through, uh, we need to care for them. And I certainly think that's above and beyond just providing additional funding into aged care. We, we have this challenge with our leaders that we're going to have to address. Well, it sounds like, you know, some of the concept of holistic care that we apply to, to care recipients will need to be provided to employees and staff as well as they're bouncing back through this time. 
have you and the team at Hammond Care been thinking about ways that you can help rebuild that uh, the morale and refill the tank for the workers? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just acknowledging the work they've done and the value that they're providing. And there's various rewards and recognitions of, that we've done around that. But we've also structurally looked at introducing wellbeing coordinators. And that is a role specifically that is almost a bridge or a pathway in the counselling support if needed. But, you mm -hmm. know, in the first instance, it's a resource that's dedicated in the staff. And, you know, when there are any leaders that's been through and carried undue stress and pressure in the past two years, it's just being with them and working with them and making sure they're okay and sort of mapping plans and strategies to do that. You know, how do you look after yourself? How do you re-energise? Do you need time off? Do you need any additional help? You know, so specifically working on that, but through to broad events, you know, so if there's some difficult events that come in one of our facilities or cottages, these wellbeing coordinators, alongside our pastoral care coordinators, coming in and connecting individually um, with our staff and then trying to do, you know, regular check-ins mm -hmm. because our staff who are dementia consultants, you know, each day they, they'll often face confronting situations with people living with dementia with sort of, you know, increasing intensity and frequency of behaviours. How are we caring for our staff? You know, we're making sure that they're as fresh and able and, you know, ready to face those daily challenges. So I think we're trying to be very purposeful in the support um, that we give to our staff because, I mean, they're providing the best possible care they can, but who's providing care to them? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a leadership team, that's what we've really focused on. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, Mike, we've covered a lot today. This has been really interesting. Thanks for your time, Mike. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate the opportunity. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget that each Friday, we've got a fresh episode of our new show, Who Cares?, in which Daniela and Maury take another look at the ideas we've been discussing in today's episode and how they might affect all of us working in the aged care industry. It's fun, thought-provoking, and just a little bit silly. And the good news is it's all right here in the podcast feed, so you don't have to click anywhere else. But if you want to make sure you don't miss out, hit the subscribe button and you'll find out exactly when that episode is available. Anyway, we'll see you next week.